I mentioned earlier in the year, perhaps around the first of the year, that this would be a year where we would emphasize evidences. Evidences of the inspiration of the Bible. Evidences of the existence of God, and therefore logically if God exists, that God would reveal his will to man, and that we should look for that revelation of his will. And when we look honestly and objectively into this book, we see that this is it, clearly. While that is denied by a great many people and seemingly an increasing number of people in the time in which we live. And therefore, there is that need for an emphasis, I believe, perhaps more than ever, on evidences. The power of the Word of God. We have just concluded a Sunday night series on the great 119th Psalm, which exalts the Word of God. In fact, we entitled the series, Psalm 119, Exalting the Word of God. Tonight, I want us to move to a New Testament book and spend some time on Sunday nights as we continue a theme of emphasizing evidences, looking at 1 John in that epistle, which has been called the Epistle of Certainties. And certainly an epistle that has been designated, an epistle of certainties, is one that is worthy of study from the standpoint of, of uh, affirming our faith, reinforcing our faith in this book as being the inspired word from an all-powerful God. First John has also been called the epistle of love, and John has been called the apostle of love because John had so much to write on that beautiful subject, that important subject of love. But as we begin this series tonight by way of introduction of the book briefly and then looking at the first four verses tonight, I want us to think, first of all, about the apostle himself, just briefly remembering that John was, of course, the uh, brother of James, both sons of Zebedee, a rather prominent uh, fisherman, it seems, based upon what is uh, revealed to us in Scripture, who left all, who left all, John did, to follow the Lord. And uh, he was one who was totally dedicated uh, to God. He was one who, along with uh, Peter, was on, a, on, a, on the scene at an occasion when in the last part of the gospel, according to John, you remember that uh, in the exchange, the poignant exchange that Jesus had with Peter, after Peter had denied the Lord three times and then was asked of the Lord on that occasion after the Lord's resurrection three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And then Peter affirmed his love for the Lord, and the Lord told uh, Peter that there was a time when you girded yourself, this is John chapter 21, and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then John comments by inspiration on that statement of the Lord in the next verse, John 21, 19, writing this, This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Now notice this, then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, a special attachment there, 
the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? That's what John had asked. Peter, seeing him, that is, seeing John, said this, But Lord, what about this man? In other words, you've told me what's going to happen to me. What about John? What about this man? What's going to happen to him? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't you be concerned, Peter, about what's going to happen to John. You just focus on following me. Well, that statement of Jesus, as is the case tragically with uh, many statements of Jesus that are misunderstood, that don't need to be misunderstood and misapplied, gave rise to, to this statement in verse 23. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Is that what Jesus had said? Did Jesus say that John wouldn't die? No, he said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? Jesus didn't say John wasn't going to die. But the saying went out that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? That's really a very apt illustration of tragically how many rest or twist the scriptures and do not concentrate fully on the meaning of the scriptures and get things mixed up. But it is interesting to note that John lived longer, according to tradition, than any of the other apostles. That he did live a long life. And that may have contributed as time went on to others saying, see there, John's still alive. The others are gone. He's not going to die. But John died. It is believed that John was the only, of the, only one of the apostles who died a natural death, who did not die a martyr's death. And that he wrote this epistle of 1 John. Most, uh, most Bible students who have studied the matter thoroughly believe it to be a date around A.D. 90. There are some who take an early date uh, for the book, just before the destruction of Jerusalem, but the later date, around A.D. 90, written from the city of Ephesus during a time of peace, is the clear indication because there is nothing in the epistle concerning the kind of persecution about which we read in First and Second Peter, for example, and some of the other epistles. It is believed that around A.D. 90 was the date of this epistle that John, at a very later age, as an elderly man, wrote from the city of Ephesus during a time of peace, just before there was an outbreak of tremendous persecution in A.D. 94 at the hands of Domitian, the Roman emperor, who is famous for his severe persecution of Christians. And so this is generally believed to be the day written by John, who also wrote the gospel according to John. And if you compare the early verses of 1 John 1 with the early verses of John 1, you see very striking similarities, so striking that it would be really foolish to deny that both of these writings came from the same pen. John wrote 1 John, 2 John and 3 John, he also wrote the gospel according to John and, of course, the revelation. Why did he write them? Why did he write this epistle? 
There are really four purposes that are stated by John in the book itself, in the epistle itself, as to the purpose of his writing. By way of introduction, let's simply look at them. Of course, we'll come to these verses in our study, the Lord willing. But look at chapter 1, verse 4, the last verse that we'll be studying in some detail tonight. In chapter 1 of 1 John, at verse 4, John writes, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And so one of the purposes, as stated by John himself, was that they might have a fullness of joy. Well, as we study this epistle, we would hope if we study it uh, as we should, to come away from it with fullness of joy. Since that's one of the purposes for which John wrote it, we would certainly hope that as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, if we study it as we should, our joy would be made full since John says, I've written these words that your joy may be full. You know, that in and of itself would be a reason to make us very eager to study First John. Don't we all want to have fullness of joy? Of course we do. How can we have fullness of joy? John says, I'm writing this so you can have fullness of joy. But in uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, he writes this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And so a second purpose for writing 1 John is seen in that statement, that you may not sin. When we come to that verse, we'll see that he meant by that statement, I'm writing with the goal in mind that you won't commit a sin. But of course, he will add, we know that if we do sin, and we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. But the goal of the book is that you might not sin. And that should be our personal goal as Christians, that we avoid sin. Obviously, we're human beings and we do sin. But our goal should be not to sin. Then over in chapter 2, a little bit later, at verse 26, we see another stated purpose from the writer himself of this epistle. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Do any of us want to be deceived? Certainly not. We want a fullness of joy. We do want to avoid sin if we're thinking as we should, and we don't want to be deceived by anyone. So, so far, the three purposes that John himself states for writing this epistle make it well worth our time and effort to study it and apply it fully to our lives. And then over in chapter 5 and verse 13, the fourth purpose as stated by John for writing this epistle. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Do all of us want the assurance that we have eternal life in prospect? Do all of us want to continue to believe and have the foundation to supply our faith and to help that faith to be a perpetual growing faith? Indeed we do. And so from these four statements from the pen of the writer himself, we see why First John is an epistle certainly worth our study. That's true of all the Bible, of course. But these purposes, as stated by John, help us to understand and appreciate just what we should be able to glean from a careful, faithful, prayerful study of the epistle of certainties, also called 
the epistle of love. And then there are some key words in this epistle. One is fellowship. Fellowship. It's used three times, but it's a certainly vitally important theme to this epistle. And a precious, precious possession, if indeed we are in fellowship with one another and with God in Christ. And then there's the word know. Know in some form appears 32 times in this epistle, thus giving us some insight as to why the epistle has been called the epistle of certainties. The word know is there time and time again in some form, some derivative of it is there 32 times. And then we can also see why it is called the epistle of love because that's the other key word which we find 26 times in this epistle. And as I've thought about the words fellowship and know and love, I've thought about those three beautiful words, those three beautiful concepts as supplying to us the inspired ingredients for an absolutely invincible church. Think about it. If you want the inspired ingredients for an invincible church, a church that cannot be invaded by Satan, a church that cannot be divided by Satan, no matter what he throws at us. You value precious fellowship as you should. You have the knowledge of God's Word that you should have as a child of God. You have that permeating a congregation and the appreciation for that precious fellowship. And then you couple that with a love that is a deep and abiding and ever-growing love. And you have, in those three concepts, the inspired ingredients that make a church invincible as long as they are maintained and as long as they are nurtured. And so this is a great epistle that we are about to study. And with those things said briefly, as a background... We enter into the text itself by looking at the first four verses tonight, beginning, of course, with John's statement, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now, I did not mention the design of the epistle, but this first verse reminds me to talk about the design or the purpose of the epistle. John wants it to become abundantly clear that Jesus, the Word of Life, capital W, became flesh. In his gospel account, he mentions very, as we said, similar words as he begins that account, and go back with me to John chapter 1, compare John 1 in your Bibles with the verse on the screen from John, 1 John 1, verse 1, and notice the similarities. In the beginning, this is John's account of the gospel now, in the beginning was the Word, capital W. Notice the similarity in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word, capital W, was with God, and the Word was 
God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now drop down to verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the Word, that's capital W again, the living Word, the eternal Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Compare John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14 1, with 1 John 1.1 1, 1, and you see the very striking similarities. There's no question about the fact that John is the author of both and that both were written to produce within the reader a tremendously powerful and abiding faith in the deity of Jesus Christ. Why was it important at the time in which John lived to make this kind of emphasis, to place this emphasis on Jesus becoming flesh? Because he lived at a time when there was a heresy afoot known as the Gnostic heresy. And the Gnostics were those who claimed a superior knowledge. In fact, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word meaning knowledge. And the Gnostics claimed to have a superior knowledge. They had a superior knowledge. But as a part of that knowledge, they supposed, and there were two groups basically of these Gnostics, the Docetics and the Serinthian Gnostics, and uh, they had some different views, but basically they believed that flesh in and of itself was evil. And therefore, deity could never, never dwell in a fleshly body because the body is intrinsically evil. And deity could not inhabit a fleshly body. Therefore, the Gnostic theory was that Jesus was not really... Jesus in the flesh, but simply one view was he was an apparition, that he really never was a fleshly body. I believe that was the docetic view. The Serinthian view was that the Christ, this is far out, the Christ actually came upon Jesus, the man, at his baptism and then left him at the cross and ascended from him at the cross. And that is far out, and it has no basis whatsoever in Scripture. But it was all based upon the idea that deity could never have become flesh because flesh is intrinsically evil. But now notice this. This particular premise led them to a prolific and indulgent, fleshly, carnal lifestyle. Why? Because their body and their spirits were so separate that whatever the body did, they believed, did not in any way affect the spirit. And once they were regenerated, once they supposedly had become Christians or had become Christians, then whatever they did from then on in the body could in no way affect, adversely affect their spirit. So what would that lead one to do? Anything one wanted to do. Anything one wanted to indulge in with the body, one could do it because it could not in any way adversely affect the spirit. Now that's what John had to deal with. And 
there is an account, if it's true, that says that on one occasion, John was going to the bathhouse, and he realized or heard that Serenthus, one of the authors of one of these aspects of, of Gnosticism, Serenthus, the author of the Serenthian version of Gnosticism, John heard he was in the bathhouse and he refused to go in to take a bath and fled saying, let us all flee lest the bathhouse in effect come crashing down <laughs> because Serenthus, the false teacher, is inside. That's how much distaste, if that be a true account, that John the apostle had for this false teaching. But doesn't that help us to understand and appreciate why he would begin this epistle as he does? and emphasize as he does that Jesus was a fleshly individual and he was Jesus the Christ. He was the Word, the living Word that became flesh. The Word of life. The Word of life. What does that word indicate? Word comes from the word logos. And I... I want to share with you and read to you what B.W. Johnson, in his commentary on the gospel according to John, had to say about the Word, this capital W. He said the Word, Logos, which John introduces without explanation, is not used in the sense of Philo and the Gnostics as representing reason, nor is it ever used in that sense by the writers of the Bible. But he goes on to say this, nor is it an attribute of God not an attribute of God, but an acting reality, personal, instead of an abstraction or personification. A person, capital P, he says, a person who appeared upon the earth in human form. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the, capital W, Word of God, not because he speaks the Word, nor because he is spoken of, nor because he is the author and source of the Word, as spoken in the Scriptures, but because the Word dwells in him, acts through him, and speaks from him. In other words, he's the very embodiment of deity in the flesh. He goes on, he is not only the Word, but the light and life. For in, uh, for similar reasons, the light dwells in and shines from him, and the life lives in and works from him. It is because he is the light that he has filled the world with light. Because he is the life that the dead of the earth hear his voice, become new creatures, live a new life, and the world itself is regenerated. It is because he is the Word, capital W again, that he spake as never man spake, spoke in the morning of time, and at his voice order came out of the primeval chaos spoke to the dead when he was on the earth, and they rose from the tomb, and shall speak to those who are in their graves, and they shall hear his voice, and come forth in the resurrection. It was this word, which was preexistent before time, that was manifested in the fullness of time in the flesh, to carry out the gracious ends of divine love. And that's the word, capital W, that John is describing here. Not an apparition, not someone upon whom the Christ ascended at his baptism and, and descended, uh, ascended from him at the cross. No, but deity, the very embodiment of deity in fleshly form, the capital W, the word that became flesh, 
and suffered and died that we might be saved. That which was from the beginning. Notice he doesn't say he who was from the beginning. That would be what we would expect if he's talking in this verse about the Christ himself, but he's talking about those attributes of the word that he and the others were able to see and to look upon and to touch, that which was from the beginning. All of these attributes of deity, John says, I'm about to tell you, I am an eyewitness of these things. That which was from the beginning, which we have, and notice the progression. Notice the progression in these statements. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. It's one thing to hear something. It's another thing to see it. But even seeing it is not as strong a term as what we have next when he says, which we have looked upon. Because that's an expression that means it's not something we just saw in passing. It's not something that we observed casually. But we have gazed upon him. And the word actually indicates not only looking with intent, but looking with pleasure. In other words, the object of that which you are gazing upon with intent and careful study is an object of pleasure. And what could be, who could be, more pleasurable to look upon and to study than Jesus the Christ? That's what John says about him. That's what we were privileged to do. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and our hands have handled. Can't you imagine why he would say, and our hands have handled, when you had the Gnostics saying he was an apparition, a phantom, and never was really a bodily individual? John says, we have handled him. We have gazed upon him. We've studied him concerning the word of life. And then he goes on, the life was manifested. In other words, it was made known. He reiterates here, reemphasizes the statement of verse 1. We have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. In other words, we are witnesses. We are witnesses. You know, we've mentioned before that there are those who, who claim to witness for Christ. That's a misnomer. Uh, it's not something that we should, uh, should include in our spiritual vocabulary because we do not witness for Christ. We're reading, we're reading about witnessing for Christ here. This is a witness for Christ, John the Apostle. We have never seen him. We have never studied him personally. We've never had the opportunity to hold him. We are not eyewitnesses, in other words, of that which John was privileged to be an eyewitness. We are to tell others about the Christ, but biblically speaking, we do not witness as such. But John does and says... That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Why, John? That you also may have fellowship with us. 
What does that tell us about not only what John is writing here, but what is written throughout the New Testament? It tells us that the only way that you can have fellowship with others who have done what the Scriptures tell us to do is by doing what the Scriptures tell us to do. In other words, we have to have a declaration, we have to have a declaration from the Word of God as to what we're to do to enter into fellowship. What is that declaration that we have? The Gospel. What does the Gospel tell us to do in order to enter into fellowship? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Repent of our sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God. And then be buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. As Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, Mark 16, 16. John says, that which we've seen and heard we declare to you. Involving not only these statements here, but every other statement by inspiration, including, obviously, what to do to become a Christian, because only by becoming a Christian can you have fellowship as a Christian. But notice this, he doesn't say this is how you can have fellowship with us alone, but most importantly he adds, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What does that tell us about fellowship? Fellowship is both horizontal and vertical. Fellowship extends to all those who have done exactly what this book tells them to do in the New Testament to become Christians and to enter into fellowship. But when we enter into that fellowship, having done what this book tells us to do, we do not enter only into fellowship with those who've also done that, but our fellowship is vertical as well, and most importantly, with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, there can be no fellowship, there can be no fellowship in Christ without being in Christ, and the only way to be in Christ is by doing what the New Testament teaches. In other words, the only unity that we can plead for and appreciate and have confidence in is the unity that is based upon the teaching of the New Testament. It cannot be achieved, unity and fellowship cannot be achieved on any other basis. Listen to what Jesus prayed, and we've talked about this before in John's account of the gospel, as he records his prayer in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus prays now in this part of the prayer for all believers. He has been praying in the previous segment for the apostles. But now in John 17, 20, he turns his attention to all believers. And I have in this Bible a little heading that says, Jesus prays for all believers. That's exactly right. I do not pray for these alone, that is the apostles alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prayed in his last hours on this earth for the unity of all believers. On what basis? On what basis? The only basis 
upon which unity can be achieved. To be as united in the same way as God and Christ are united. We've asked this question before. Are God and Christ, the Father, the Father, and the Son, are they united in doctrine? Why, of course they are. Has the Father ever said to the Son, Son, we can just agree to disagree, and we'll still have fellowship one with another. Jesus, as he lived upon earth, said, I always do the will of my Father. Everything Jesus said was in complete harmony with the will of the Father. Why then today, in the religious world, do we believe that we can achieve unity on the basis of saying, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, as long as we claim to believe in Christ, whether we believe the plan of salvation is revealed here, uh, whether we worship in the same way that we see revealed here, no matter the difference, basically, as long as we have that core belief that Jesus is the Christ, then all else matters not. Where, where do we find anything that would justify that kind of foundation or basis for unity that pleases God? We do not find it. What we do find is that John says, I'm declaring to you the word of God, my eyewitness testimony, which would include the gospel, so that you may have fellowship not only with all those others who have entered into that fellowship by obeying the gospel, but most importantly that you can have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. How is that fellowship maintained? Jesus said, how is it obtained and then maintained? By having the same kind of unity that Jesus prayed for when he said that they may be one in us as I, Father, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be one in that same way. Whatever way Jesus, and God, uh, Jesus the Christ and God the Father are united, that's the very same way in which we must be united. That's not a complicated statement that Jesus makes in that prayer, is it? And yet, tragically, tragically, there is unity that is claimed to exist virtually on no basis whatsoever other than perhaps what some call the core gospel. That is, that you believe that Jesus is deity, that he's the Christ, but whatever way you chose to supposedly obey the gospel doesn't really matter. If you prayed the sinner's prayer versus being baptized for the remission of sins. If you didn't believe baptism was essential to your salvation, you were baptized because you believed that that was a commandment, but not a necessary commandment. You were baptized because it was a good thing to do, but it had nothing to do with your salvation. I'm not supposed to care about that, but accept you into fellowship, regardless of that action. Where in Scripture, where in Scripture do I have that freedom, that justification, for so doing. Aren't we all the kind of people, hopefully, who would like to be as inclusive as we could possibly be? I know I speak for myself that I would be. I would love to be in, as inclusive <laughs> as I could possibly be. And it sure would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it, in so many ways, if we could be as inclusive as many in the world are telling us we should be today. But God didn't give me that right. God gave me his revealed word. And in that revealed word, he tells me that I can enter into fellowship with him and with his son only by obeying the gospel of Christ. And I can enjoy fellowship only with those who have also obeyed the gospel of Christ 
and entered into that same precious fellowship by so doing. And when I've entered in to that precious relationship and I know that I have done exactly what God through Christ in His Word, the New Testament has told me to do, then what about my joy? What about my joy? What about the eunuch? I think about the eunuch. They traveled along the way and Philip was teaching him the Word of God and at a certain point the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. They went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, and they both came up out of the water. And the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. The eunuch saw him no more, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing. Joy made full by knowing that we know. And John, in the second chapter of this great epistle we're studying, says... By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Have you obeyed those commandments tonight? Do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Unless you believe that I am he, Jesus said, you will die in your sins. John 8, 24. But that belief alone cannot save because Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so I have to repent. That means changing my mind and changing my life. But I also, Jesus said, must confess him before men courageously, unashamedly. And he promised that if I'll do that, Matthew 10, 32, he'll confess me before the Father in heaven. If I deny him, he'll deny me, verse 33. But as we alluded to earlier, Jesus also said this in such clear terms, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And everything we read in the New Testament in precept and beautiful example in the book of Acts, everything we read brings us to the clear conclusion, if we're objective in our study, that baptism is the culminating act of faith by which we enter into that precious fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with all others who have obeyed the gospel of Christ. How do we maintain that fellowship? John will tell us a little bit later in this first chapter. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what if you cease to walk in the light as he is in the light? You no longer have that fellowship, and you no longer have the cleansing blood, but tonight you can have it once again, and your joy can be full again as it once was. If you'll come home in repentance, confessing sin that needs to be confessed in a public way, and saying, I have sinned, and asking brothers and sisters to pray with you and for you, to the God of heaven who loves you and loves you so much that he once again will apply the blood of his son to cleanse you and forget forevermore every sin that is against you. If you need to respond tonight, will you come now as we stand and sing to encourage you?